This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Laura Suter, and on today's show, we're going to be looking at putting some numbers on rising costs that are affecting our everyday lives. We're also going to be looking at some tips on how you can put controls on contactless debit cards. And Dan Coatesworth is with me this week. He's going to be looking at markets, discussing the big sell-off in THG and ASOS shares, and also why the recovery in Chinese equities has hit a little bit of a bump in the road. Yeah, that's right. I'll also be talking to Charles Glass from Waverton Investment Management about why he sees investment opportunities in European infrastructure and retail companies. And later on, we'll hear from Tom Selby, who's back to answer a listener question on pensions. And Tom will also be looking at new figures that suggest how much money we'll need each year in retirement. And it's a niche one, but if you've got some old looking statues in your garden and you're wondering if they're valuable, then you're definitely going to want to hear what Jenny Owen has to say on this week's podcast at the end. But first up, let's look at markets. Dan, let's kick off with what's happening in China. Give us an update. Yeah, well, you know, Chinese uh, issues have been sort of worrying the stock market um, for quite a while now. There's been regulatory clampdown on technology and education sectors. Stocks like Alibaba and Tencent have been smashed. Now, at the same time, we've had fears growing that this massive Chinese property group Evergrande couldn't repay its debt and would cause all kinds of problems to the banking system uh, and commodities demand. And then that would have a negative impact on other markets as well. But I I don't know if in the last couple of weeks, it seems like we've reached a bit of a turning point. Investors perhaps taking the view that Beijing won't let Evergrande fail and, you know, valuations for many of these sort of beaten up tech stocks starting to look a bit more attractive. And perhaps investors just saying, you know, there's so much bad news already priced in, you know, it's now's the point to take a look again. So we've seen a bit of a rebound in shares like Alibaba since the start of October. And this went on until a couple of days ago when new government interference appeared. So China has started to inspect the financial regulators, the biggest state-run banks, the insurers, um, you know, and and sort of bad debt managers as well for the first time in six years. And here, what it's trying to do is root out corruption in its financial system. And we also saw um, the food delivery group Meituan, which had a, been hit by a five hundred and thirty-four million dollar fine for abusing its dominant position. So. You know, that's kind of uh, you know halted the China stock rebound a bit, but I think you also have to consider that global stocks have also stalled as well. Investors are just worried about um, all these extra costs that we're hearing about and how that's going to hurt corporate profit margins. And of course, there's ongoing fears about the pace of economic growth. But you know, I'm still hearing feedback from people who who do watch the China markets um, a lot, and and they are all sort of saying, you know, just look at the valuations; they're much more attractive than they were. Um, and, you know, and, and that the government has constantly interfered from a regulation point of view over the years. So this is nothing new. Um, and so hence why, you know, we've seen stocks being punished in the past, but actually they bounced back quickly. So there's no guarantee that's going to happen this time. But, um, you know, I think if you just look at the historical evidence, it would suggest perhaps, you know, if you are interested in, in the Chinese market at all, um, perhaps don't get too spooked by what's been happening in recent months. 
And so then a bit closer to home, any big stories of the week that we should all be aware of? Yeah, so THG is definitely the one that lots of people have been talking about. So on the 12th of October, the company held um, a capital markets day. And this is sort of an event that's meant to be informative and help analysts and investors better understand the business. As that meeting went on, THG shares started to fall fast and they fell by more than a third in a day um, you know, as the market reached its close. This is uh, not what the company was expecting. It was trying to explain um, in simple terms what it's trying to do and its strategy, but um, actually it just spooked people. Um, and I got the impression that there must have been some people in that room who were just sort of sending text messages saying, like, dump that stock immediately. Um, so if, if you're not sure... You're not familiar with this company. THG is perhaps better known as the Hutch Group. It's sort of a quasi-tech and retail business. So it sells beauty and nutrition products, and it runs logistics and web platforms for brands like Nestle so they can sell direct to the consumer. So THG recently said it was going to break up its business, um, list each bit as separate entities. And of course, that's created lots of questions about costs and um, capital expenditure and cash flow for each of these businesses. But THG doesn't seem to want to give that information. Um, so everyone was excited about this business when it came to the stock market for um, the web and logistics arm called Ingenuity. So the company struck a deal with Japan's SoftBank, um, which bought an option to buy a 19.9% stake in this Ingenuity platform. And that sort of values that division at £4.6 billion. So this is where it gets interesting. So the, the, the big fall in the share price has essentially left um, the whole THG business trading just over £3 billion. So effectively, if you were to buy those shares at that price, you'd get the beauty nutrition business and the tech stuff, which was the original excitement about the stock, you get that essentially for free. Um, but valuing these individual parts of the business, if they were run as standalone entities, it's very difficult. Now, I think that's probably why you haven't seen lots of people rush in to buy the stock at depressed levels. And I've certainly seen fund managers um, who and analysts who would normally expect to say, you know, look, this has fallen way too far. This is a bargain opportunity. They're just not saying that at the moment. So interesting. And anything else? I think we, we talked a bit about ASOS at the start of the programme. Yeah, so that, what's going on there? Well, poor old ASOS's um, shares are down more than 50% since January. So, um, you know, the fast fashion sector's been struggling a bit. This is an, an industry that saw very, very strong levels of growth. And that growth is getting harder to achieve at the moment. And, you know, ASOS has followed Boohoo by saying that its outlook's not as good as it's going to be um, previously expected. Chief exec is leaving now after six years in the role. And really now you've got a business that is, uh, you know, it's trying to expand in lots of different countries, including the US. Um, there's lots of big expectations about, you know, what it should deliver. Um, and it's actually finding, you know, it's finding life very hard, but it's still got these plans to become a 7 billion revenue business within three or four years. Um, it wants to you know, be more environmentally friendly, you know, kind of similar messages that we're getting from lots of companies in the fast fashion industry. But, you know, but like many companies that have disappointed recently, it's all very well saying that you've got these bold plans. It's, it's all about the execution. And, you know, ASOS needs it to be flawless if it's really going to you know, win back the market's favour. So let's move on to one of the big issues facing everyone this autumn, and that's the rising cost of living. So Laura's been running the numbers on just how much money we're going to have to fork out. 
Yeah, so we've talked on the podcast before about rising costs, and I'm sure it won't have escaped anyone's attention. All of the headlines filled with news of rising energy costs, particularly, and a bit about rising petrol costs, even um, because of the recent crisis, but also just because oil prices are rising. Um, But that all seems a bit kind of far removed from our actual daily budget. So I thought it would be interesting to look at how much the average family spends on different areas and whether those costs are going to be rising or not, just so we could get a grasp of um, how much households are likely to be hit. There's a lot of different items, obviously, and you can read the full article in Shares magazine next week, but I'll just go through some of the ones. So Dan, the average household in the UK spends £274 a month on food and drink and then another £56 on alcohol and cigarettes. How do you think that shapes up to your family spending? Uh, that's a lot more than I spend. So, <laughs> and this is, so this is the average family, isn't it? It's a family of four. Yeah, so all of these figures that we're talking about are averages, so people are going to find themselves above or below it, um, sometimes depending on regional variances or just on your kind of taste or size of your household. Um, But yeah, so that's the average amount. So it's a bit over £300 a month um, once you've included alcohol and cigarettes in there. Um, But food shopping is one of the big ones that we're going to see increase. And actually, it makes up quite a large proportion of spending in poorer families as well. So those that are less well off spend a higher proportion of their income on food shopping and so are going to be hit harder by rising food costs. Um, And then energy bills, so hard to get a grasp of exactly what people are paying right now. So the standard, the average cost for a family on a standard tariff was £108 a month. Um, But that was before the recent price rises. Um, If you were on a fixed rate deal, then you were going to have a lower amount. But if you're a big household and your usage is higher or you're on a prepayment meter, then you'd be paying more. But the price cap means that prices have already gone up by £140 a year. The next price cap comes in in April, and that is going to rise again because it's based on energy price rises that we're seeing at the moment. Some have put that increase at about £400 a year. Um, Obviously, if you're on a fixed rate deal, um, then you will be protected from that. But depending on when that deal expires, you could see a massive price rise when you come off that deal. So that's one area that's definitely rising in price. Another big cost for families and households is council tax. So the average um, band D, which is kind of the middle band council tax bill in England, is just shy of £1,900 a year. Um, That's already risen by about £7 a month this year already. Um, We're expecting another big increase in that. So essentially, councils have already got to foot the bill for a lot of the cost of pandemic and supporting their communities. But the recent um, care funding and the changes to the care sector that the government announced, um, some of that cost burden is going to fall on local councils. And what we're waiting to see in the budget in a couple of weeks' time is how much money central government allocates to local councils to help pay for that care cost. Um, And if they don't allocate that much money, then local councils are going to have to raise council tax in order to claw back and raise some of that money. So the IFS, a think tank, has already predicted that over the next few years, we could see £240 increase to average council tax bills. And even in its best case scenario, where central government allocates a decent amount of funding to local councils, 
we're still going to see about £160 a year added to our bills um, within the next few years. Wow. I mean, um, these, these figures are quite alarming, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's quite a lot of areas. And I think when you go through, um, like I say, you can read the full article in shares, but when you go through the big costs that households are shelling out for, almost all of them are going to be rising or have risen already. Um, so... I think, I mean, we talk about it all the time on the podcast, but I think it's a case of kind of looking at your outgoings, um, putting together a budget, seeing how well you can absorb some additional rises in prices. So, uh, yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's, t- it's tough going. I mean, I guess as we're talking about spending, the limit on the contactless card goes up on the 15th of October from £45 to £100. Now, I know that some people find that convenient but i reckon that it's probably others will get themselves into financial difficulty if they're sort of freely tapping away in the shops not really realizing what they're spending so is there something you can do to impose controls on these cards to to stop you being able to go all the way up to that 100 quid yeah so there are some things you can do so some banks are allowing you to set your own personal limit so if you don't want um, your contactless limit to be 100 pounds you can set a lower limit Um, so Halifax Lloyds and the Bank of Scotland which are all in the same group allow you to set your own limit between 30 pounds and 95 pounds so you can set what you're comfortable there but they'll only allow that on debit cards And then Starling Bank, which is one of the newer startup banks, um, also allow a personal limit to set um, between £10 and £90. And you can do that on their app. Now, unfortunately, at the moment, they're the only banks that are letting you set your own limit. I think we might start to see more allowing you to do this and bringing in this functionality. Now a few have done it, but I guess it takes time for them to set up these systems and work out how they're going to do it. Um, if your bank doesn't allow you to set your own limit and you really don't want um, contactless or don't want this increased limit, then you can opt out of contactless altogether. So some banks like Nationwide, NetWest, Barclays, Santander will allow you to opt out of contactless altogether and they will either give send you a new card um, that doesn't have that contactless functionality or they'll just disable the contactless functionality on your card. Um, but again, not every provider offers that. So HSBC, Barclay Card, American Express, Capital One and MBNA don't allow a personal limit and they also don't allow you to turn off contactless. So if you're with one of those providers and you feel really passionately about it, then it might be that you need to look at switching. Yeah, so having a grasp on your spending is very important. I just don't think enough people sit down and work out what they can really afford to buy each month. And you know, even understanding how much your lifestyle is costing you is very important when planning how much money you need in retirement. Tom Selby from AJ Bell is here to talk about this topic as there's been a new study out which puts some numbers on retirement living. Yes, that's right, Dan. So these are the retirement living standards. They've been created by an organisation called the Pensions and Lifetime Savings um, Association. And they're they're designed to give people a rough retirement spending benchmark based on their lifestyle and help frame conversations around saving and investing and withdrawing. So it's, it's something that should be thought of really as a kind of rule of thumb for how much you might need to have to spend in retirement to enjoy a certain standard of living. So the PLSA have divided their living standards into minimum, moderate and comfortable. So 
looking at the the amount of money that you'll need for each living standard. So they then split that up into how much you'll need if you're single and how much you'll need if you're in a couple. So for the minimum standard of living, if you're single, you'll need around £11,000 a year or £17,000 a year if you're in a couple. If for the moderate standard of, standard of living, you'll need around £21,000 a year or £31,000 a year if you're in a couple. And for the comfortable standard of living, you'll need £34,000 a year if you're single and around £50,000 a year if you're in a couple. Now, it's important to note that, what, first of all, that these are just rules of thumb. And secondly, this is the amount that you that they expect you would need to spend in order to enjoy these standards of living. So in terms of the income that you'd need, you'd need to take into account the amount of tax that you would pay on that income in order to get to that expenditure figure. Now, it's probably worth having a little look at how these um, these minimum, moderate and comfortable retirement living standards look just to kind of bring it to life. So let's let's have a look at the the single um, the single example. And this is someone this is the the moderate example. So, if, so as a, a single person who's, who's who's looking for a moderate standard of living, they'll need around twenty one thousand pounds a year of expenditure. Now, in terms of what they would need to do on their home, so these are these are quite there's lots of things that go into these, and they change the 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 living standards in a similar way to consumer price in, inflation. The basket of goods changes each uh, each time the 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 ONS reviews it. So lots and lots of stuff goes into these into these figures. But just into in broad terms, if you look at that moderate figure, um, so you would you would you would be looking at some help with maintenance and decorating every year. You'd be looking at a forty-seven pounds a week shop, um, holiday and leisure. You'd be looking at two weeks in Europe and a long weekend in the UK every year. About seven hundred and fifty quid for clothing and footwear each year, and about thirty pounds for birthday presents each year. If you wanted to step up to the comfortable standard of living in retirement, then in terms of things you're going to do on your home, you'd be thinking about replacing your kitchen and bathroom perhaps every 10 or 15 years. Your weekly shop would be a little bit more expensive. So you might be going to Waitrose rather than Tesco, for example. So that'd be £59 a week for your food shop. You'd be replacing a two-year-old car every five years. You'd be going on holiday a little bit more. So it'd be three weeks in Europe rather than two weeks in Europe. And you'd be doing that every year. You'd be spending a bit more on clothes as well. So somewhere between a thousand pounds and fifteen hundred quid. And you spend a bit more on birthday presents as well. So fifty pounds for each birthday present that you buy. Now the the purpose of this isn't the creation of these living standards and the updating of them with different things based on our lifestyle isn't to tell people exactly what everyone will need in retirement, because of course the income that you need will depend on various things, including the, your your lifestyle, how you like to how you like to spend your money. Of course, your health and things like that as well will impact on the size of pot you need to to deliver that that amount of money. And of course, for lots of people, their their retirement spending will vary as they go through retirement. So they might spend a bit more in the early years and then a bit less in the in the in the middle years of retirement before perhaps their costs can go up later as they need long-term care. So it's it's not supposed to be a, a specific thing that you're aiming for, but rather it's supposed to start conversations for people about how they think about their retire- their standard of living in retirement. And that's both for young people and older people as well. And then to start thinking about how much you need to save in order to enjoy that different standard of living that you want. So if you're 
comfortable with a minimum standard of living, then perhaps you don't need to save a huge amount beyond the state pension. But if you're aiming for something a little higher than that, for some something around the moderate or comfortable level, then you're just going to need to think about saving a bit more and making making the most of those matched employer contributions and the boost from tax relief as well. Thanks, Tom. So it's always good to know how much you might need rather than just a vague message of you need to save more for retirement. It's quite good to have some actual figures to aim for. But while we've got you on the show, can you dig into that mailbag next to you, pull out a listener questioner on pensions and answer it for us? Yes, I can. Um, first of all, thank you so much to everyone who's who's asked questions. I, I, I've got an, an, an inbox now full of lots and lots of interesting questions. So I apologise if I haven't got to yours yet, but I've I've got a, a, a diary now of, of questions that I'm, I'm I'm trying to get through, and I'll keep coming on the podcast to answer them. And of course, I'll keep answering them in Shares Magazine as well. Um, but this week's question is from Graham. Graham was sold a pension policy by one of the big insurers in the late 1990s, which was half unit linked and half with profits. So since 1999, he says the insurance companies have applied an MVR to the with profits portion of his policy, and it will cost him 10 to 15% of the fund to move his SIP. So Graham asks, how can this possibly be fair? Um, I suspect there'll be quite a few people um, who were sold with profits policies at some point certainly in the in the 80s or 90s will be who'll be in a, a similar position to Graham so it's worth just explaining I think how how they work so first of all if you have a with profits pension then that just means that your contributions into that pension are invested with those of other members into a collective pot rather than something like a SIP for example where you invest all your own money in your own uh, own assets and your own choice of funds and things like that um, with profits, pensions will usually offer to pay what are called annual and terminal bonuses. Terminal bonuses sounds a bit grim, but they're actually good things when you get them. So the former bonus, so the annual bonus, um, is paid each year, and the terminal bonus will be paid at the end of your policy term. Those bonuses are usually a percentage of the value of your fund. Now, the aim of with profits funds is to smooth out investment performance. That's the aim of the bonuses as well. So you're less directly exposed to rise and falls in the value of investments over the shorter term. So you can see why that might have been popular for, for people who particularly want, want some exposure to the stock markets, but don't like the fluctuations that you often get, particularly over the short term when you're investing your money. Um, a unit link pension, which is the other thing that Graham mentioned, is one where the underlying fund is divided into units of equal value, and then the value or price of each unit will depend on the value of the assets in that fund. So the unit price determines the, num determines the number of units you receive when you invest money in the fund and the amount you receive when you sell your units. So that's most of the jargon, I think, covered in the question. But the key bit was around what's called a market value reduction or MVR. Now, that's sometimes applied when a with profits investor chooses to transfer their pot to a new provider before the end of their policy term. And as, as, as Graham has found, they can be quite significant. The purpose of an MVR is simply to ensure fairness across all members in a with profits fund. So it's probably 
easiest to explain how that works in, with an example. So if you had three investors in a with profits fund whose policies are worth £100,000 each, that would mean the total value of the collective collective fund would be £300,000. Now, if the fund dropped in value by 10%, for example, because of a market shock, and that's something we saw in 2020, and then one investor chose to take their policy without an MVR being applied, then there'd only be £170,000 left between the two remaining investors. So they would only get £85,000 each when they'd originally invested £100,000. So an MVR would usually be implied in those circumstances to make sure that each investor in the With Profits Fund gets the same amount each, i.e. £90,000 if it had dropped to £170,000. So I suspect this is what's happened in Graham's situation. And, and as I said, he won't be alone because lots and lots of with profits policies were sold in the in the 90s and lots of their investments haven't performed particularly well as a result. The, the, in order to ensure fair value for those members, MVRs are, are, are likely to be needed in order to make sure that everybody gets the, the right amount from the fund. Um, so in terms of fairness and whether or not Graham has the option to to complain. Of course, he does have the, have the option to to complain. But the key question will be whether or not the policy clearly set out that an MVR could apply in these circumstances. So, if if he feels that that wasn't the case, so that it wasn't explained to him how the policy worked, it wasn't properly spelled out by his provider, then if, then he can start off by complaining to the company that sold him the policy. If that complaint's rejected, then the other option is to go to the financial ombudsman service and they will give an independent adjudication based on the merits of your case. Um, for anyone who, who wants to go down that route, whether it's for a, a with profits policy, a pensions policy, or indeed any other kind of financial product, then probably the easiest way to, to, to find out how to do that is simply to search for something like FOS, how to complain on, on Google or your preferred search engine. Well, brilliant. Thank you very much, Tom. So if you've got a burning question about pensions or anything money related, send us an email at podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll do our best to answer it. But just remember that we can't give specific financial advice. So let's bring on our next guest. Investors are increasingly looking overseas for investment opportunities. So we thought it would be useful to get an expert on European markets. Um, Charles Glass runs the Waverton European Capital Growth Fund, which has delivered nearly twice the returns of its relevant index since launching 20 years ago. So it's one of the top performers among its peer group. Dan talked to Charles about where he's seeing opportunities, particularly in infrastructure and retail sectors. So on the UK market, we've seen a lot of companies bounce back quickly from COVID with stronger earnings. But there's been a few industries like travel that are still left behind because they're still coping with um, ongoing restrictions that are preventing them from enjoying a big recovery in earnings. So I presume the situation is the same on European stock markets. And if so, is this where you're sort of hunting for investment ideas? Because I presume that there are some opportunities with cheaper valuations here. Yeah, thanks. I mean, ex yes, exactly the same sort of things going on in continental Europe um, for the travel stocks. Clearly, with the airline, uh, particularly in the airports and airlines, um, there have been some big issues to do with a lack of business travel, um, lack of international travel in general. Um, but what we're seeing is that, or what we're expecting is that in the next 
months leading up to the end of this year, some of the big uh, international destinations will open up and they'll probably be ready for next year's important travel season. And the stock market will probably start to, to discount the improved situation um, a little bit more, more quickly. So we've got shares in, in, in airports and in the airlines infrastructure, uh, IT businesses. Um, on the airport side, it's quite interesting what's been going on there. Um, and we, this is where we think that the, there's been a, a, a dichotomy of, of um, a major change within uh, that industry. And the, if you take Germany as an example, um, I mean, Germany has 36 regional airports um, and only about seven of them were profitable pre-pandemic. And what we think will happen is that a lot of these regional airports will 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 um, be reduced to, to sort of small, uh, to, to almost non-existence. And the airlines will sort of concentrate back on the major airports. Um, and so that'll benefit companies like Fraport, which runs Frankfurt Airport. Um, but we also see the same sort of thing going on in Spain. And we own IANA that owns uh, a lot of the, 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 the important uh, regional airports and, and, and central airports. They own Madrid and Barcelona. And what, as, as traffic comes back, um, what, what's happened is that the, the, the revenues will come back more slowly, but these companies have cut costs really very heavily um, during the pandemic. Um, and we'll see much improved profitability on lower passenger numbers. So we think there are some really quite good opportunities to come through. And, and it's a matter of seeing, I think, probably some, some catalysts uh, coming through and in more, air, in more international destinations opening up. Uh, we heard recently Australia's planning on, on opening up. And of course, they were one of the most um, uh, you know, restricted areas uh, in terms of air transport. Yeah, so, so the company, these these stocks that own um, investments in airports, I would have thought that there's plenty of infrastructure investment funds who would like to put money into those sort of markets, and you know, airports would be a natural thing to invest in. So, are they are they sort of are they really sort of on bargain ratings at the moment, or have you sort of seen you know infrastructure people come in and uh, and think, okay, this is perfect time to take a long term view of things perhaps like you you're sort of taking a longer term view we're trying to work out what the valuation on on these companies is quite difficult because most of them have no earnings at the moment um and so people are only trying to work out you know a valuation based on you know where are what are the earnings likely to be in in the future and of course it's very difficult to do that and so they're tending to sort of look back at the past and say you know, are these companies looking cheap compared to where they were in, in, in the past? But as I was saying, I think there's there've been some of these major changes in that these airport companies that used to go out and, and spend every pro- all the profits and all their cash flow on buying new airports elsewhere or developing new uh, new runways or rebuilding the, the, the terminals. You know, they're getting much more uh, focused on, on profitability. Um, and so we think that on a on a normalised basis, you know, companies like Frankfurt Airport, you know, could easily be on in, in, in a year or two's time on you know P's price earnings multiples of about twelve times, which is very low. And I think that's very attractive for infrastructure 
uh, funds, um, and, and certainly we know we know some infrastructure funds that that um, are looking very strongly um, at, at airports. Yeah. So, so if we if we move to a different industry, um, retail. So you know, again, if we look at the UK stock market, perhaps this is a comparison. We've seen companies like Boohoo and AO. They've been missing growth expectations. They're all talking about cost pressures and consumers losing confidence, which is affecting spending. So how does that compare to, to the retailers that trade on European stock markets? Well, they're very, very, again, very similar themes in that during the pandemic, clearly the, the online retailers had a very good time. Um, but as we're seeing opening up, um, what it's allowing is that there's the larger uh, companies with physical stores like Henners and Maritz or, and, and Zara, Inditex's Zara, you know these 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 um, these players who who have developed their own very strong online presence uh, have been able to to supplement that with with the the opening up of their stores. And of course, if you look around the high street, particularly in the UK, but it's the same in in, in other parts of Europe. It's a much diminished landscape for for clothing retailers, so you know it's a slightly the last man standing, in the you know very strong companies like Zara, are actually finding things really very good for them. The, the big issue for most retailers in Europe and and I think worldwide is getting supplies of and and stock from Asia, um, and again this is why we we like Inditex because. We believe that they have been supplying their stores um, in Europe. Uh, about half the stock has been coming uh, from their own manufacturing and local manufacturing in Europe and North Africa. So we think they have a sort of long-term competitive advantage there. And I think it's no surprise to see that that uh, the Inditex is now showing profit profit margins that are similar to what they were in 2019 in the, this year, despite the fact that they've still had quite a large proportion of, of, the, of their stores uh, unable to trade in, you know, in, in, during the lockdowns earlier in the year. Um, so, so very exciting. And, and again, major, major seismic changes um, in the industry. Yeah. I mean, is retail a sector that you'd normally look at? I mean, perhaps before the pandemic, is it was, did that feature quite heavily in your portfolio? Um, absolutely not. I, <laughs> retailing is is what has many of the characteristics that we really don't like, um, and so it's a bit of a surprise that we're in them. You know, the characteristics of the industry are that it's ferociously co- uh, competitive, even before the advent of, of the new online players, that the Boohoo's and Asos's. Um, and of course, differentiating yourself between your, between uh, one company and another, given that they all use the same sourcing or similar sourcing, it is very difficult. And so, you know, they, they do go from profits to losses, profits during the good times and losses um, during during recessions. Um, so it's quite unusual for us to find a company like like Inditex or to be investing in a company like Inditex, you know, obviously owning Zara, that we think will just. Uh, structurally grow, and we think it'll be a, a, a winner takes all. Um, you know, over the cycles, um, and, and you, even during twenty twenty one, for example, they generated, we believe, something like two billion euros of cash. 
just generally at the moment, how are you feeling about markets? I mean, we've got two, two and a bit months left of the year. Um, you know, there's a lot of headwinds out there. Are, are you sort of perhaps um, sitting on a bit more cash than you normally might have, waiting to jump on any sort of correction in the market? Or do you think actually, um, you know, it, the, the prospects for equities in general are still quite good? Um, well, we are nervous. Um, we're clearly going moving. The market is clearly transitioning from a let's just buy momentum and growth to let's think about what the implications of inflation are. And obviously, some inflation is coming through uh, because of the the, the pandemic. Um, you know, lack of lack of uh, products being delivered, um, but other things are being caused by a lack of lack of investment. Uh, and finally, that lack of investment is catching up um, in, in higher prices. And, you know, the obvious one being in, in energy markets, you know, where renewables and are not being built out as fast as um, people are not investing in, in traditional fossil fuels. And so we're, we're trying to take advantage of um, industries that have got some sort of cyclical growth to them, where we think that, that long term, uh, the price, their pricing power will remain intact. And if you can find companies that have got good pricing power, it doesn't matter too much if inflation is coming through because they can always pass on those inflationary pressures. And so our focus has really been to try and find those companies where there, there is a sort of product that is in long-term demand, um, you know, albeit from you know, industries like liquefied natural gas, um, where... You know, almost every day we see the estimates for, for LNG demand uh, for the 2030 and 2040, you know, going up as part of the, the energy transition. Um, and we're investing in companies that are uh, specializing in uh, carbon capture and in, 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 in changing industry away from fossil fuel towards electrification. That's the, the, the joy of being a stock picker rather than... Um, you know, essentially just buying Europe or buying America. Uh, you can go down the, the byways and find subsectors of industries that have got growth uh, when the market as a whole perhaps uh, is finding headwinds, as you described. Well, Charles Glass, manager of the Waverton European Capital Growth Fund, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Dan. So before we wrap up the podcast, it's time for Jenny Owen's regular quirky money story. So this week, she's been hunting through people's gardens for valuable goods, which, I mean, doesn't sound great, Jenny. I personally haven't been rooting through gardens, don't fret. Um, but a couple from Suffolk, they've had a stellar payout in, at an auction recently. A pair of stone sphinx statues, uh, which they bought for £300 and left in their garden for 15 years, sold for a staggering figure. The items were listed as 19th century carved stone garden models, but the auctioneer thinks the price was reached because the buyers seemed to think they were actually Egyptian. The battered and mossy stone figures made a gigantic £195,000, and the buyers have decided to remain anonymous. The sellers decided to make a bit of money selling bits and bobs before moving house, and the three-foot-long statues were, amongst other items, in an online auction on Saturday. Bidding started at £200 and within 15 minutes the gavel came down at £195,000. 
maybe all the money markets listeners should check their stone sphinx statues uh once they've finished listening to this week's podcast i reckon you are sort of quite into your garden furniture and collections aren't you jen plants yes but uh there's no gnomes in sight um in my flat or outside my flat but so yeah i've 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 stuck to uh to the greenery very good. Well, that's everything from us this week. Next week, we've got an expert who likes investing the easy way through trackers, but isn't really a fan of paying a fund manager to do the work. So that should be quite an interesting discussion. Until then, thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Music